Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. Monday. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Snapshots in and on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History. Oh my God, you read that right. Our guest this week, Doug McLean. Doug freaking McLean. So excited to have Doug on the show. Before we get to that, I want to thank Jim Fox again for coming on last week. Had a great interview with Jim. I think a lot of people really enjoyed that. Got some great feedback. Uh, Jim was a great guest. And don't forget to check out his wine line and also uh, all of his work with the LA Kings. So uh, now that we got that out of the way, not that I wanted to get to that out of the way, Doug McLean came on the podcast. So excited that Doug came on. I grew up and specifically remember seeing the Columbus Blue Jackets and all the press conferences and seeing Doug McLean on the bench and being like, I bet he's a nice guy. And he did not disappoint. I'm telling you, he is such a nice guy. It was so cool for me to chat with him. We run through his basically formation of the Columbus Blue Jackets and how it all kind of came together from how he got his job to uh, having to deal with the business side of it, to dealing with ownership, to getting the product on the ice, to having to trade players. You know, he originally said, hey, Brett, I'll give you a, a, a you know half hour. Is that good? We ended up talking for 51 minutes. Just a killer dude. Uh, sorry to see that he's not on Roger Sports not any, uh, anymore. I don't know what went down with the contract negotiations. He touches on that a little bit at the end, but uh, I think he's a real asset in the media. And to me, he is a guy that having him on the podcast is just like, whoa. So uh, very excited, if you couldn't already tell, to have Doug on. And I think everyone will really enjoy this interview uh, coming up. So uh, for all my American friends, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I will uh, be uh, doing some interviews this week, so excited about that. Got a lot more stuff coming up for the rest of the year, but uh, I'm not going to gab anymore. I'm just going to just flip it over to Doug McLean. This, uh, like, he needs no intro. Doug McLean's the man. Just he's the man. And uh, as I said, we cover his formation of the Columbus Blue Jackets. So basically, from like '98 to like 2001, the end. We basically do the inaugural season and really do a deep dive into creating an NHL franchise. So take it away, Doug McLean. So I, I, I guess the idea for the Columbus Blue Jackets really started in November of 96 when five investors formed a partnership called Columbus Hockey Limited. And it kind of came to fruition when Nationwide agreed to come on board and uh, build a $150 million arena. And Gary Bettman makes the announcement. So there's some excitement there. They, they named the team the Blue Jackets. And, and I got to ask you, Doug, how did you kind of come on board with this? You were in Florida at the time. How did you wind up here? Yeah, it was pretty bizarre, to be quite honest. I, uh, you know, obviously I was coaching the Panthers and uh, I saw that, I remember them when I was coaching the Panthers, they actually came in my office after a game and showed me this uh, T-shirt, uh, which was going to be the new expansion team's T-shirt. You know, it was the first thing out in, in 
merchandise from this new team that was coming out of Columbus with a picture of this crazy bug on the front of it, and it said Columbus Blue Jackets. And I looked at it and said, oh, my God, how ridiculous looking is that <laughs> for, a, for a, a logo for a T-shirt. So lo and behold, I, you know, I, I end up getting fired in Florida in late November, I believe it was. And, and uh, so it was really weird how it all happened, how I got the job in Columbus. When I was coaching the Baltimore Skipjacks in the American Hockey League, I'd met a guy. His name was John McCracken, and I had met him. He was working in Baltimore for Worthington Industries, and uh, I had met him. And then, uh, and prior to that, after that, I had given him a tour of the Red Wings dressing room uh, when I was coaching in Detroit after Baltimore, and never stayed in touch, but I sort of did those couple things for him and some of his clients, never thinking a thing of it. So out of the blue, I get a call saying, hey, uh, my owner just bought an NHL team, um, <laughs> and I and I remember what you did for me in Detroit with my clients, and I remember you from Baltimore, and uh, I'd really like to mention your name to him. And... Uh, I said, well, I appreciate that, you know. So he mentioned his, my name to Mr. McConnell, and then I, he got me Mr. McConnell's uh, executive assistant's uh, name, number, at Worthington Industries. And I, I at the time, was unemployed. And I, probably a couple of weeks after I was let go in Florida, and I phoned Mr. McConnell, and we had a chat, and we ended up just living. I had a place in Florida. We were living just down the street from him, and, Within 24 hours, I had an interview uh, for the job. So it was pretty bizarre how it all came about. And uh, I I went in, and I obviously was the first hire of the Blue Jackets. I mean, there was a lawyer working for them. And uh, that, you know, it was the start of, of uh, you know, me hiring a couple hundred people. And uh, it was pretty bizarre. I mean, I, I remember it was so strange to start a franchise. I remember taking the Florida, all of a sudden I'm going to be the general manager and then president of the Columbus Blue Jackets, and that's coming from coaching, and uh, which I've done the previous 60 years. And I remember taking the Florida Panthers media guide and writing down all the positions I needed to hire. Okay, I need a VP of marketing, I need a VP of PR, I need a VP of communications, I need a VP of corporate sales, I need... So that's how it all came about, to be quite honest. So it's pretty bizarre. So a guy that you didn't even know that was not technically in the hockey business, basically, you just being a nice guy, you hook him up, and next thing you know, you've got a job interview to run a franchise. And you take the job in February of 98, and you mentioned this, you got the title president added. And I'm curious, what's the difference between what a president and a GM does? Well... When Mr. McConnell hired me, he was like in his late seventies, and I remember going to the interview at the uh, at the Gulfstream Country Club, which is an unbelievably exclusive country club, and we met for lunch there. That was my first interview, and I had just come off coaching the Florida Panthers, so I'm walking in, and and he, I remember he was waiting at the Gulf, uh, Gulfstream Country Club for me. I show up with a you know golf shirt on and slacks, thinking, okay, it's casual, it's at a golf course. And all of a sudden, they tell me I need a sport coat to get in the place. So <laughs> a couple of guys, the valet guy, recognized me from the Panthers. He took me downstairs and showed me all these 
sports coats they had that they could wear, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're lime green, they're yellow, they're green, you know, all these crazy. Anyway, they found a navy blue, and I grabbed it. But anyway, I walk in, and a bunch of people recognized me from coaching the Panthers, and he was impressed that, you know, they they recognized me and sort of helped make the lunch a little better. But we had an unbelievable, he was a wonderful guy, an unbelievable meeting. So eventually I get the job, probably a month later. I had to go to Columbus a couple of times and meet his people in Columbus and meet his son, John P., who now owns the team, and go through the whole process to, to get the job. And then probably about a month after I was the, the GM, I said, you know, Mr. McConnell, we really need a president here. I'm the hockey guy, and we need a business guy. So he looks at me at 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 lunch, and he said, well, can't you be the president too? (laughs) I said, oh, okay, I guess I I can be the president too. So that's how I became president, and, you know, it was a a daunting process because we were building the building at the time. You know, we, we had to, you know, I was involved heavily in the building of the building, we're working with nationwide insurance and going to meetings with architects and going to meetings with nationwide uh, investors, uh, the realty investors and all the people that were building the building. And we're, our responsibility was to build up the concessions. And I remember coming home one night and we were in the middle of building the building. And I said to my wife, I said, like, I'm in over my head with this building. Like, I've got so much on my plate work, you know, with, with the, budgets and architects and and she said well i have a girlfriend i just met here in columbus whose husband is a construction guy why don't you talk to him so anyway i ended up hiring my wife's uh, girlfriend jill's girlfriend's buddy or husband to be my construction guy and he's still with the blue jackets to this day uh working in you know building their their uh, arenas or youth arenas on so he saved me when it came to going to architectural meetings and construction meetings and the whole process. And then he sort of, you know, helped me manage the building from a construction point of view after that. But it was, I, I think that because of why you were an expansion GM, I think, oh, my God, I was so much more than an expansion GM. But we, we started, I, as I said, I was the first hire, and we had to hire everybody uh, to run the franchise. And on game nights, there was a 1,000 people working for the Blue Jackets, so... It was a it was an amazing amazing experience to be involved in. And I'm just curious. You talked about hiring so many people. Was there anybody that sticks out in your mind that you went, okay, I'm taking this job. I'm I'm writing down my VP. I gotta get this guy. I know I want to bring him with me. Was there anybody that stuck out to you for that? Well, there was, was a couple people, and the number one guy was a guy by the name of Jim Clark, who who I had met in second grade in Summerside PEI. Uh, Jimmy had come to work with me when I was with the Red Wings. Uh, and, you know, he, he did some scouting for us in Florida. He was a business guy, but he's a guy that I trusted. I'd known him since second grade. My son Clark is, is, was named after him. And I said, this is so Jim came in as my number one guy, assistant GM. But he was more than that. He was really involved in the whole building of the Blue Jackets, and today, Jim you know, Jim was with the Blue Jackets after I left. He, today, he's director of uh, pro scouting for the Ottawa Center. He's been a lifer in the NHL. So he's still where we actually, we just had breakfast uh, yesterday in, in PEI here, so he was the, the number one guy that I brought with me, and then from that, Jim and I sat there and sort of said, okay, now we got to hire all these people, and 
you know, Don Boykin is my director of amateur scouting. Don works for Ottawa now. He was a lifer. I, I had known him since I was his assistant coach with the London Knights. Well, he came in as my director of amateur scouting. Paul Castron, who I had met over the years, who's director of amateur scouting for New Jersey today, came in as my assistant director. So I, you know, I, I was able to put, uh, you know, a group of people. When you, you know, I had been in the NHL 15 or so years before I got the job in Columbus. So a lot of people, and I was just getting hammered. I, I, I don't know how many thousands of resumes I had in in their files in Columbus, you know, when you're starting the franchise. Unbelievable how many people want to work in the NHL and, and apply for these jobs. It was amazing, to be quite honest. And so you said it yourself. You start from the ground up. I mean, we're talking marketing, season tickets, and you're doing this in a traditionally dominated football market. And in October of 99, you finally get to make a hockey decision. You end up signing with an AHL affiliate. You bring an affiliate on board. You bring a franchise, the Syracuse Crunch. And I'm curious, what makes a good affiliate or a good partner for an NHL club? Why choose them? Well, it was interesting. We, I had known uh, Howard Dolgan, uh, the owner of Syracuse. I was involved when I was assistant GM in Detroit I was uh, involved with the American Hockey League. I was a GM of Adirondack at the time when when Syracuse came in the league, and I had dealt really closely with Howard when he was joining the American Hockey League as an owner, and I was heavily involved in the due diligence of, of him getting in the league. I knew him. They didn't have an affiliate at the time. Uh, they had just broken off. I believe it was with Vancouver. And I thought, hey, you know, it's not the most convenient location, um, Cleveland had a, an affiliate, so I thought, hey, we know Howard. We've had a history with Howard. Um, Jim Clark knew him. I knew him. I felt really comfortable with him. I thought it would be a real good fit, and we ended up being with him for quite a while, to be quite honest, until they, until they eventually moved to Cleveland. But it was a great fit, and it was all because of a relationship that I and Jim Clark had with Howard Dolgan, the owner. And to this day, we're still great friends. So as the new millennium starts, you finally get the opportunity to kind of create this hockey team. And on May 4th, it's reported in the Dayton Daily News that the Blue Jackets signed their first ever player. The team signed free agent, undrafted college goaltender Greg Gardner. I know Greg never made it to the NHL, but, you know, he is the first player ever signed by the Columbus Blue Jackets. What do you remember about Greg? Well, Greg was uh, playing in in the final four or the final eight that year for uh, Niagara University, he was, had, had just an unbelievable year in college hockey. Like, he was the talk of college hockey, to be quite honest, that year because of what he had done for Niagara to get them as deep as they went. I, I'm not sure it was the final four they got to or the final eight, but he, this guy was standing on his head nonstop. So, you know, we took it out. It was a good gamble to sign a goaltender that, that, uh, you know, would start in the American Hockey League and would see what he'd become, you know. So, you know, it was it was really, there was a, probably 10, 12 teams that were after him. I remember dealing with Pat Morris at Newport Sports. It was a ton of teams, a ton of interest, and it was really kind of a fun process to go through as an expansion team to be in against the big boys and, and to have a chance to get him. So it was, you know, we, we thought it was a good gamble signing for us. He didn't. He didn't play in the NHL, but he had a good minor league career. And today he's 
I hear from him once in a while. He's assistant hockey coach at Mercyhurst University. So oh, wow. it's funny. He was actually my son, Clark, and I drafted at Clark, and, and Greg was one of his coaches. So and he you... ended up at Niagara, and now he's at Mercyhurst. So, yeah, I was, he was one of our first. We started signing an advocate, Matthew Darshad at McGill. That was a good uh, – was a good. He ended up playing in the NHL and having a decent career, Matthew, in the NHL. So it was kind of a, you know, what we were playing with some house money there, just signing, trying to get a sign some guys for the American Hockey League. To be quite honest. And, and Greg, you're right. Niagara was not a hockey powerhouse for so for him to come out mm-hmm. of there and stick out. He must have done something well. And as you alluded, you signed Matthew Darsh, also Jonathan Schill, made a couple trades, yeah. acquiring Espen Knutson, as well as signing yeah. one of my all-time favorites, Reggie Savage. The team gotta forget uh, forget uh, some of those signings. That's pretty bizarre. But you know, Eskin went on to have a actually Eskin went on to be an NHL All Star, which is pretty bizarre. But um, you know, it was sort of fun to you know to see where some of them ended up. Uh, we had, I had done my goaltending. I I had done a deal that I was signing. I knew I was getting Ron Pugnett before the expansion draft, and I knew I was also getting had made a trade with. Uh, Colorado to get marketing. So our goaltending was done before we went in the expansion draft because we had a court. We knew we were getting the pregnant signed as a free agent out of Pittsburgh. We knew we were getting uh, Mark Denis. So I just sort of wasted some picks in the expansion draft because we had our goaltending set going into that. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. It was interesting. You go ahead and you have the expansion draft and, and you guys pick some very capable goaltenders. Rick Tabaracci, Dwayne Rolison, Frederick Shabbat, as well as defenseman Jamie Pusher, Lyle Odeline, Matthew Schneider, Burt Robinson. You also take Jeff Sanderson. So a ton of good players, Steve Hines, I can go on. But it was interesting to me. Tugnut ended up coming a few days later. So you're telling me that was all done beforehand, before the expansion draft. Yeah, and nobody's supposed to know that, by the way. Uh, that was done prior to that. So I knew I was getting them. So I didn't have a deal done, but I knew I was getting them. So, as a matter of fact, Pugnut, I signed him to a five-year deal at $10 million, and his boat on the, at his cottage in the Peterborough is called the SS McLean <laughs> because I gave him $10 million for five years. And Tugger came in and was unbelievable in Columbus. He was so popular and was so good for the first three years or so. It was unbelievable how popular he became in Columbus. So it ended up being a really good signing for us. And Mark... Denis, at that time, looked like he was going to be a star. He was Patrick Waugh's backup at Colorado. We watched him closely. We, you know, and he, he he became a good NHL goaltender, but I thought he was going to be a great NHL goaltender. But uh, anyway, it was so kind of fun to look back and, and run into those guys every once in a while. It's pretty funny to talk to them. But, you know, it was uh, the expansion draft was, I look at I look at Vegas as expansion draft, and I think, oh, my God, what, Let's not forget, Nashville came in two years before us and took a lot of players. Atlanta came in a year before us and took a ton of players. And us and Minnesota came in together. Like, it was a joke, to be quite honest. What what was, what was we were up against uh, compared to what a Vegas was up against this year. Like, I'm serious. It, it, you go into that draft, and it was a lot of it was about wasting picks because they were throwing guys to us like you know either with bad contracts that you didn't want or old guys it was sort of a it was a uh, you know I, I I can't say I'm ticked off because I know things have changed and I I understand the whole Vegas scenario but what riser and I Doug riser and I 
and Don Waddell had to pick from after David Coyle's first year. It was pretty bizarre. It was slim pickings. And then you also had it Minnesota. Was it really wasn't. I mean, we, you know, rise, Doug Rush and I get criticized, you know, for our, you know, for our, uh, you know, our franchise at times, and I'm thinking, oh my God, if they knew what we're up against, uh, you know, they wouldn't be, uh, they wouldn't be ripping us quite as much. But anyway, it was fun. Several teams left veterans exposed, including one of them was Mark Messier. What's the theory behind not taking, you know, maybe an older guy to build your franchise around? Is it just because they're not around well, long? You know what? It was all about, you know, going in with as low a salaries as you really could. You know, that was the, that was the model. I mean, look, Vegas went almost to the cap in their first year. They're, right. Their second year, they're almost to the cap. This year, they're definitely at the cap. So. You you really had to go in. So they exposed guys that were 36, 37 years of age that were being paid astronomical dollars and knew that, and they were they were close to being done at the time, you know. So that was that was the the real challenge, and they knew they could expose them because they knew we weren't going to take them at those dollars and at where they were, at what stage they were in their careers. So that that's so what it was was committed the expansion draft. With a few players, we had done a deal with Buffalo to get Sanderson prior to the draft. Um, that, we took him with our first pick, but he wasn't going to be made available. So, so we made a deal with uh, I made a deal with Percy here to make sure Sanderson was available. Um, you know, there was a so we we came out and in our first year, our payroll was seventeen million dollars. <laughs> Everyone else is probably thirty and forty and fifty. We no no. We played Detroit eight times that year, if I'm not mistaken, and I think their payroll was seventy five million. Oh my god! No cap in those days. I'm pretty sure they were at seventy five million, and we were at seventeen. And I'm thinking, I remember talking to Dave Kingsman, and we got to play them eight times. Good luck. (laughs) And they were loaded. That was the rationale. Was get through the expansion draft as cheap as you could and feel as competitive as a, a, a team. We ended up finishing a point ahead of Minnesota in year one. That was our Stanley Cup finishing ahead of Minnesota in year one. And a competitive, we were a pretty competitive team in those days. 83, 84 points probably made the playoffs, so we thought we were heading in the right direction. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and, and we made $22 million profit in our first year in wow. the NHL as a franchise because it was all about our payroll was, uh, was uh, you know, $17 million. You end up getting through the expansion draft. We have the draft the next day. You end up taking Radoslav Kessler from the Brampton Battalion as your first pick. And both drafts are done, and, and we're getting ready for training camp. What is your average day like? I mean, what are – I'd imagine you're being – pulled in so many different directions. Well, you know what? It was going to say that the, the, and the, we ended up flipping with right. Us in Minnesota really kicked me off going into the draft, to be quite honest, because the Islanders were getting the first pick. Atlanta was getting the second pick because the Islanders had finished last, so they were getting the first pick. Atlanta were getting the second pick because they'd come in the year before us. And Riser and I, Doug Riser and I, flipped as to who was going to get the third pick. That's what it was all about. It wasn't who was getting the first pick in the expansion draft. It was draft. the third pick. It was who was getting the first pick in the in the in the amateur draft. So Riser and I flipped. He wins the toss. He gets the third pick in the amateur draft. I get the first pick in the expansion draft. Big deal. So 
it was frustrating. So I knew, you know, you had DiPietro, Heatley, Gabrick, and Kressler. That They were the big four in that draft. I remember hearing at 2 in the morning that the Islanders were taking DiPietro, and I was thrilled. I was thrilled that we weren't going to take DiPietro. We liked him a lot, but we weren't taking the goalie of their first pick. Mm-hmm. So then it was down to Heatley, Gabrick, and Kostler. We really wanted Gabrick. Don Boyd, our amateur guy, really wanted Gabrick with our pick desperately. We liked Heatley. He was a real good player at Wisconsin. We really, and we loved Rusty Kostler. There's a lot of rumors that Atlanta might take Kostler going into that draft, so we didn't really know. Anyway, we end up, obviously, Heatley goes two to Atlanta. Gabriel coached three to uh, Minnesota, which we thought he would, and, and Rusty came with us. You know, Rusty, he, I, uh, we thought he was going to be a starter. He had a 12-year career. He's a good, solid guy. He didn't become the offensive guy we thought, but he was a really well-thought-of young defenseman coming into the league. He made the league as a 19-year-old. We sent him back his first year after his first year. And, you know, he, he was a he was a good, solid NHLer, but it was when you look at that draft, it was not a very good draft, man. I mean, I remember looking after that pick. It was, like, scary. So, <laughs> you know, there's some good players. Like, Hartnell tells me, I've had Hartnell on my show in Toronto a few times, and I said, he said, hey, uh, I interviewed with you for the draft. Why didn't you drop me? I said, well, we took Kressler instead of you. And he said, well, how'd that work out for you? Oh, <laughs> daggers. Well, we had some fun over it. But, you know, Kressler was a really solid And like I said, he, he was banged up at the end of his career. He probably should have played 15 years. He played 12, and he had some, he had some pretty tough in, uh, concussion injuries and so on. So finished his career in Phoenix, but he was a, he was a terrific kid. So the, the roster is shaken, is taking place, and it sounds like you've built from the goal out. And now we got to pick a head coach, which I was kind of surprised that you guys didn't do before the draft. So you end up settling on Dave King. You, you had Brian Sutter in there. You had Brian Trottier, as well as Ron Lowe. What kind of separated the former National Canadian team coach from everybody else? Well, you know, you, you look at the history of expansion, I guess, you know, the, David Poyle took Trotsky. They'd had a history. Of, you know, I, I, my decision came down to Dave Tippett or Dave King. That was my decision. I interviewed Brian Sutter, who I loved. I interviewed Billy Barber. I interviewed Brian Trotsky, who had, you know, Brian Trotsky's resume was over the top as a player, but he had very little coaching experience. So I really came down to Dave King or Dave Tippett. And you know what? I remember being with my owner, and I said, look, these are my final two. And he said to me, I'd go with the young guy if I was you. I'd go with Tippett. That's what he said. This is a guy that was never around hockey. Never. And I said, well, I want to go with the veteran guy. I, I really think we need an experienced guy. And Dave King's had a great history, and he's made teams competitive. And, I, and I, I've told Tip and I have talked about this since, you know, that that, and he knew that was the call. And, you know, I went with Dave. It, they, Minnesota had hired Jock Lemaire, which was a veteran guy and a defensive guy. And I I liked Dave King. He was an impressive guy. And, you know, Dave came in and, and did, a, did a really good job for us. He really did. Well, training camp kicks off. And we're, and we're not going to go month by month, game by game. But we're going to hit a couple of the highlights from the season. And you finally hit opening night. The Chicago Blackhawks are in town. The first game goes off without a hitch, and the Blackhawks got the better of the Jackets, but Steve Hines, Bruce Gardner, and David Vorobniev all scored goals for the home team. Jamie Pusher was actually the first player involved with a fight. This game had everything in it. 
Can you walk us through any memories that you have from that first night or that training camp, really? Well, it was 19,000 people in the building. I remember um, the owner owner sent one of his private jets to PEI to pick up my parents and and my uh, some close friends and fly them to Columbus for opening night. So my mom and dad were there for that night. I still have an amazing picture of the arena and it shows them sitting in a in a private box for, for that first inaugural game. It was unbelievable atmosphere in Columbus. It was it was a special special night. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, after the first period, we're leading three nothing, and I'm thinking, oh my god, this is easy. <laughs> this is easy. I got this. And I'm thinking, oh my, anyway, we end up losing the game. I don't know what it ended up, 7-5 or whatever it ended up, but we lost. And I'm thinking, oh my God. Anyway, we're up. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, we're leading 3 nothing after the first period and playing on play, and then the Blackhawks came alive. But we lost the game, but it was just an amazing, amazing. Like the whole first year was in, uh, was a special season. We were a competitive team. As I said, I, I think we ended with 71 points, and Tugger was... Tugnet was a star, and we had some great players. San- Sanderson was a thirty-plus guy, and you know, a class, you know, we, we we just had some great young guys that came in as expansion. Stevie Hines had a heck of a year for us, and Sandy and uh, David Vidborny, and we brought him out of Europe as a free agent, and he had an outstanding year. Espen Knutson had a good year. I mean, we had a really quality, quality group of guys, and it was a. It was really a fun year. It really was. So you end up getting the first, the team struggled and gets its first win against the Washington Capitals. It's first home win, excuse me. And you said afterwards, I can't remember when I've wanted to win so bad, including the Stanley Cup finals. So I'm sure you were a little stressed out, but Ron Tugnut, you touched on him, played incredibly well during this stretch. And I have to ask, where did the vote for Tugnut campaign come from? Well, that was a fan thing that happened, and you know, between the fans loving them so much and the presidential uh, elections going on, that that they they thought it would be a big slogan, and it became so big, it was unbelievable how big he became, and how big the slogan thing came throughout Columbus and throughout you know, Tugger for president. It was just amazing how it took off. And he became this folk hero in Columbus, and it was a great thing for our fans. I mean, our fan support. I, I think we were sold out our first four years of the franchise. In a, and you said it in a non-hockey market. I, I remember my son going to school. Clark was nine or so when we moved to Columbus, and he went to a school, and he came home one day. And we were just getting the franchise started, and he said, Dad, uh, Dad, hockey's not going to make it in Columbus. He said, I said, why? He said, they hate hockey here. They love they love football, and they hate hockey. <laughs> this is a nine-year-old coming home from school telling me this. So hey. he and I, he's been an agent in Chicago now, and he and I laugh about it to this day. But uh, you know what? The whole Tugnet thing, there was lots of just great things. Our fan base in Columbus for a non-traditional group were unbelievable, and the excitement about the team is terrific. Mr. McConnell had such a great reputation in the city that people and, and I'll tell you what else that was unbelievable. In in our building, we sold twelve thousand season tickets before the season started, but mm-hmm. it was unique because it was a it was a PSL building, a private seed license. So we had to sell a season ticket. So let's say the season ticket was twenty five hundred dollars. The seed license was another twenty five hundred. 
So it was a daunting task to go to people and say, hey, you're going to buy season tickets for the food dining, but you got to pay $5,000, $2,500 for your season tickets. So let's say 80 bucks a ticket and another $80 a ticket for the seat license. And that seat license money went to Nationwide and went to the building of the building. We didn't get any of that. And so that was, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I got to sell 12,000 season tickets. I, I, I have more rotary, Kiwanis, Kinsman mugs than anybody <laughs> in the world has because that's how many luncheons we spoke at selling the game of hockey over a year and a half prior to us starting. Like it was, I mean, a big part of my job was, was trying to sell hockey. And, uh, you hit the streets. You hit the streets and got out there. Oh no, we did. And my staff were unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, you know, whether it was the mascot rate to the, the corporate sales to the, you know, the community relations, whatever it was, they were unbelievable the work they did. And, you know, we're on the topic of business, and this didn't happen until February, but I, I want to bring this up. Off the ice, city officials made sure that when visiting NHL players came to town, they had to leave part of their paycheck behind. The city council approved an amendment to the city's tax code that visiting players have to pay 2% income tax when suiting up at Nationwide Arena. And, and you weren't happy about this. You said that the city didn't even consult you on this. And, and I'm sure this is the first time you've been asked this, but this was shocking to me because I didn't realize this was, you're not a tax attorney and, and now you're a hockey guy. You're having to deal with this kind of stuff. What was this all about? Well, it was funny because it, it became a, you know, it was the first I'd ever heard of it. And I was sort of blown away by it because the last thing you needed was any negativity when you're out in the field trying to recruit players and, right. and, and talk players into coming to Columbus. But what happened in what happened eventually is it it became a National Hockey League situation. Every every state in the country did it and are today still doing it. So you know it became like a league thing, to be quite honest. Oh, wow. um, so it, it it sort of caught me off guard, and I was like blown away. But it 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 worked itself out because everybody in every state in the in the country did it after that. So it ended up being a level playing field then. It ended up being level, but I was just caught off guard by it, to say the least. So as we go through November, Columbus picks up four games in a row. And on November 22nd, the team traveled to Colorado to play the Avalanche, where the team suffered a tough 5-2 loss. And this Avalanche team in 2001, I'm, I'm kind of curious your opinion as a hockey man. You talk about dynasties. You talk about great teams. Would you put the Avalanche of this era, you know, they won it in 96, they won it in 2001, as maybe one of the better teams in the past, let's say, century? Look, I coached against them in 96 in the Stanley Cup Finals. Oh, that's right. And, uh, we we had a good team in Florida, and we, we were a great story as a third-year franchise in the NHL. But I'll tell you what, coaching against that team, and I had an unbelievable group in, in uh in Florida, but to go up against that team, which essentially was the same team that we played a few years later, they were one of the great teams. And they, I don't know if they get the credit, starting with Patrick Waugh. And let's not forget, this was their first year in Colorado when I coached them in the finals, but they were a veteran team with Patrick Waugh in goal and, and Adam Foote. And I mean, it was just Forsberg and and Lemieux, and it just went on and on. And I remember coaching against him, trying to match up. My center ice at that time was Brian Scrudel and Robbie Niedermeyer. I used uh, 
Tommy Fitz, uh, Tommy Fitzgerald, who's assistant GM in, in Jersey of the sentiment, and, you know, different guys. And I'm thinking, I got to match up against Sassy. <laughs> it was daunting. So, yeah, I'm telling you what, they were, and, and you can go through the list of players on that team. They were Valerie Kaminsky. They were unbelievably talented uh, team to play against and coach against. And, yeah, it was, they, they deserve credit to be one of the great franchises of all time. I mean, they really were unbelievable. And then funny, Adam Adam Foote came to I signed Adam Foote as a free agent to come to Columbus a number of years later. He and I talked about uh, you know how good that team really was with the talent they had. They were unbelievable. We get through November and and things aren't going so well. It was a little bit of a rough month, and but things start to improve after a game in December sixth where. The Columbus Blue Jackets upend Paul Korea and the Mighty Ducks, and the Dayton Daily News reported that the team had a little bit of a visitor. It was owner John McConnell, who came down and gave a pep talk to the boys before the game, and Steve Hines said this was the first time in his career that an owner had ever visited the locker room. And we've talked a little bit about John, but how active was he? You're running the team. He's the owner. Was he active? Was he kind of letting you do your own thing? What was his role in all this? No, he was he was terrific. He he really was an amazing owner. He was a popular guy in the city. He was a guy that made it. He became a a wealthy guy starting a steel company in his garage. It was just an unbelievable uh, story of rags to riches and you know just a terrific community person. He and his wife Peggy. I mean, unbelievable in the community. But he was a tough guy. Let me tell you, he's a tough guy, and he was a tough guy. He didn't like to be embarrassed by the team. It drove him crazy. Uh, yeah, he come down and talk to the team. But you know what? When he would come and talk to the team, it would be, it would be a positive mm-hmm. uh, voice to relax. Now, when I met with him individually, it wasn't all that positive. Sometimes, <laughs> like I'll never forget when I when I fired Dave King. We lost five nothing at home. This was year three. We lost five nothing at home. And uh, I get a call. I'm sitting in my office at 11 o'clock at night. I'm devastated losing at home. It was a tough loss. Year three, this is. I get a call at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, it's Mr. McConnell. How you doing, Mr. McConnell? Oh, I had to fire the coach. This was the first time this ever happened that he ever got like that. Fire the coach. I said, Mr. McConnell, who's going to coach? You're going to coach. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm already the GM. I'm already the president. And now you want me to coach. You're the coach. And I'm thinking, like, he thinks I'm running a Pee Wee travel team. You know, like, I, you know, like, and then I read for months after from the media that I wanted to coach that fire Dave King. And I'm thinking, if they only knew the truth, but I couldn't, of course, say this because, you know, I mean, he's the owner. I had to say it was my decision to fire Dave King. And it was anywhere not even close to that. And then they written me for, oh, yeah, he always found the coach. And I think, mean, oh, my God, shut up, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. setting the story straight all these years later, it was the owner that made you do it. It wasn't your choice. I'm not right. He made it. He made it do it a couple times. He got involved. And, I mean, I don't know who was in his ear, but people were in his ear, whether it was his accountant or whether it was, you know, his barber or whoever. I mean, that's what happens with owners. They get lots of people in their ears, and that, that's just being a general manager and president. That's, don't ever kid yourself. It's the very same today, too. Every time a coach is fired in the NHL, don't tell me it's the GM that's making the call. 
what I'm saying is, you know, sometimes it, but most of the time it comes from higher up in the GM. They, the owners are heavily involved in what's going on in the team, and so often the GM takes the brunt of it. He takes the fall, but the owner is the guy that eventually, makes, you know, says, phones the GM, says, "Okay, we need a change." But I, people can tell me that's not true, and I'm saying BS. I've lived it. Oh, so you experienced it. it. You're coming from the horse's mouth here. Damn right I am. Anyway. So we're around the midseason point of the inaugural season. Things have gone okay, considering everything. And on January 14th, you shake up the roster a little bit by trading Christoph Oliwa for a third-round pick. Anything, any reason you decide to move Oliwa? Yeah, he, he, only, Oli and Oli, only Oli and I can tell really what went on, but Oli knows why he was traded, and I know why he was traded. And we'll leave it and, at that. Uh, it was not a pretty situation, so it worked out really well. But it, uh, we'll leave it at it that. What it did was it moved Oli. I, I'll never forget uh, Phone and Craig Patrick because I watched how Gil Maul, uh, Mario Lemieux in Boston. I remember Phone and Craig saying, "Craig, I got you're looking for some toughness." He said, "Yeah, I am." I said, well, "I got the right guy for you." So I traded Christoph Olawa for him. And uh, for the third round pick, but Oli was not fitting in. It was not a good situation, and I can't tell you all the details because I'll take them to my grave. We'll leave it but at that. Anyway, then. we'll leave it at that. He then. knows why he was traded, and uh, he was traded. So that worked out fine. I was thrilled about it, and what it did, it's it gave Jody Shelley a career because all the walk come back to and I, I, you know, Christoph and I have talked over the years of. We sort of laugh a little bit about it, but Christoph came back to Columbus, and at that time I think Pittsburgh had traded to Calgary. But he came back to Columbus, and he was saying, oh, "I'm going to do beat up this guy, and I'm going to beat up that guy." And I thought, "Oh, okay, I don't like this." So I, Jim Clark, is running Syracuse for me, and we bring up Jody Shelley on February fourteenth. So I bring Jody up from the minors. I said, "Jody, Christoph Olo is coming to town. He says he's going to beat everybody up." So I was coaching at the time. So I put Jody on against Olawan. He beat Olawan a fight. Jody spent 12 years in the NHL, never played another game in the minors, and was one of the great, great Columbus Blue Jacket guys. And he's still working with the Blue Jackets today as their TV guy. One of my all-time favorite guys. But he came into our dressing room as a tough guy and left as a real leader of the Blue Jackets, a real quality person. So it was funny. Christoph left, and it sprung Jody Shelley to a 12-year NHL career. February 14th, you would bring Jody Shelley up. And I was going to ask you what you thought of him, but I think you explained it there. And, and you really kicked yeah. off his career or helped him yeah, get a start. Did. Yeah. He, he did it himself. And as we kind of round, you know, end the season, we're in February and Mario Lemieux makes his uh, trip to town and he was making a comeback as a GM. What did you think about Mario coming back in the game all these years later as an owner? Well, you know what? He came back, and it was unbelievably exciting for for our fan base because Mario was coming back from, you know, the Columbus fans really followed Pittsburgh because it was, you know, a close close proximity. And with Mario coming into our building was an unbelievable. I was like, you know, the big, when the big, I remember Gretzky coming even back as a coach. You know, it, it was so exciting for Columbus fans. But that Mario come back and play was it was just a special thing for our franchise and for the city and for our fan base. It really was. So, uh, you know, I didn't really care. I mean, I was sure he was back playing, but I didn't need him playing against us, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, you'd end up I winning that. I coached against him in the uh, 
conference finals in 96. I knew all I needed to know about Yager and Lemieux. I didn't need them coming back again. Well, whatever you learned, it worked because you ended up beating him in overtime that game. And we move into March. It's the trade deadline. You end up unloading a few veterans. Uh, Steve Hines to Buffalo, Kevin Adams to Florida for Ray Whitney. I'm assuming this is, and I'm, I'm going to jump because I, I, I know we're running out of time here. This was more just trying to build for the future. Is that safe to say? Well, no. You know what it was? Stevie Hines, I tried to negotiate with Stevie Hines to get him signed on a deal, and he, and he wouldn't sign. You know, he wanted to test free agency, so... I said, okay, I can't afford it at this stage of our franchise. I gotta get, I gotta get a draft pick or whatever I can get for you. I can't, I can't afford to let you walk for nothing. So that's why I did the, the Steve. I love Steve Hines and he was a real good player for us. I would have loved to have kept him, but he, I couldn't get him signed. So that's why I did that deal. And Kevin Adams, we really loved Kevin Adams. My owner was so mad at me for trading Kevin Adams <laughs> because he was a, he was a Miami of Ohio grad. He was, you know, he was so, Real solid, terrific kid, but we had a chance to get Ray Whitney. Ray went on to be a 70-some point guy, captain, NHL All-Star. Ray Whitney had a great, that was a, one of, that was a great trade for us, to be quite honest. And I love Kevin Adams. He's had a, he had a good career, but he wasn't Ray Whitney for me, and it wasn't even close. So I, I was thrilled to make that deal. Following the shuffling of players, the Jackets take on the Flames and experience more roster moves. Your top scorer goes down. Unfortunately, Jeff Sanderson was hurt. Um, with that said, he comes back. We reach April. The Jackets play their final five games of the season and end up winning their final game over the Chicago Blackhawks with a respectable 28-39-9-6 record. And, and Doug, here's the question that's on everybody's mind. It's been a nonstop two years. Where did you vacation after the chaos that was your life for two years. Did you get any time away from the game after this season? I, you know what, I, I spent nine and two thirds years in Columbus, and uh, I don't remember. I guess I had vacations, and it seemed, you know what, I got to tell you something. That that ten year run was a bit of a blur. <laughs> I, I my kids were growing up from they were going from nine. And seven to sixteen, and I and Jill and I laugh about it today. But she said, "Like you, for you, you, you didn't really remember our kids growing up, did you? Like you were a mess." You know? <laughs> so you know what? It was a it was an all encompassing nine and two thirds year. And I know it's nine and two thirds years because that's what my NHL GM pension is. So I know how long I was in Columbus. And you know what? My kids grew up there. It's it's still their hometown. Um, we had we have great friends in Columbus. I have so many unbelievable memories of Columbus, and it was just an amazingly rewarding experience. I wish we would have had more success. I really wish we would have, but it uh, it was just an unbelievable run, and uh, it's uh, it's something that very few executives get to do is build a franchise from the ground up. And uh, I'm pretty proud to see the Blue Jackets as a really viable, successful. NHL franchise. And on that note, that was the creation of the Columbus Blue Jackets. And I, I ask everybody, Doug, when they're done, you know, you've had some changes recently. What are you up to now? What What's in the future for you? And, and if there's anything you want to plug, please plug away. You know what? I, I, uh, I've been uh, working for 41 years. I just finished my 41st year working after, a, you know, a 22-year NHL career. I had a 10-year career in media and and uh, my contract expired in June with Sportsnet, and uh, we had a you know we had a parting of the ways. 
and I'm 65 and I'm uh, retired. And I'm not sure. I've had lots of people calling me, asking me questions about what I want to do, what I want to do. I've had an, a book deal, the opportunity to write a book, which I'm probably going to do. And I, I'm just, you know what? I, I'm in PEI. We have a, a place here. We spend four months in PEI. We have a place in Florida. We live down there. So we'll head to Florida in October. And I'm, you know what? I'm not going to do anything, to be quite honest. I'm going to just sort of sort through it. And I feel great. I'm excited. And I'm looking forward to the next, uh, next uh, part of my life. So for everybody that's listening. I've got nothing to plug. For everybody that's listening, the book will be out soon, let's say, in the next couple of years. Make sure you, you keep yeah, your eyes open. the book will be out down the road. And, uh, you know, actually, I'm really close to Actually, I've got a conference call tomorrow to finalize the deal. And uh, it's going to be an intriguing, uh, different well, It's not about me. It's, uh, it's me talking about, you know, uh, certain parts of being a GM. So it's going to be... It's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be an intriguing book, so we'll see what comes of it. So go ahead and pre-order on Amazon, set it for two years from now. <laughs> and um, Yeah, it's probably a year and a half to two years away, so don't, uh, don't rush. I know I gave this one a pretty heavy intro and really hyped it up. But it's Doug McLean. I, I, I really enjoyed this interview. I hope you all did too. What amazes me though is literally how much of this is in hockey is who you know. And, and since I've started the podcast, that's one thing I've really found out is it's, it's literally, well, I knew this guy, so he brought me in. Or I met this guy, so he brought me in. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I heard a story that Bobby Smith got his job as the GM of the Phoenix Coyotes from basically sitting in a college class and he was sitting next to a kid and the kid said, yeah, my dad just bought a hockey team, the Phoenix Coyotes, you guys should talk. And next thing you know, Bobby Smith was the GM. Not saying he didn't deserve it, but it really is who you know. And, and, and it's fascinating to me. Doug got this job because of a guy he helped out when he was a coach for the Red Wings and for the Baltimore Skipjacks. And as a result, the guy never forgot and said, hey, maybe you two should hook up. And next thing you know, he is helming a franchise, a guy that really didn't have any prior business experience, was a hockey man, and just kind of made it work. So a pretty cool story. Want to thank Doug Ann for coming on. Uh, also want to thank Steve Seftel, who we had on the podcast previously. He kind of made a little bit of an intro to Doug, and then Doug was nice enough to come on. So uh, anyways, I, I was happy as can be. What do we got coming up for the podcast? Let's see. We got an interview next week. We're going to do some World Junior stuff in December. So lots of good stuff. Stay tuned on the Facebook page to kind of see updates with what we're working on. That's Snapshots in Hockey History, also on Twitter at Snapshots In. Thank you so much to everybody that was passing the word around and sharing on Facebook and, and shares the podcast. That really helps. And like I said, I can't thank everybody enough for the great reviews. I read every single one of them. Love corresponding with you all. And uh, have a great week. Happy Thanksgiving to my friends in the U.S. and my friends up north. Just happy week in the north i don't know so uh and and i must say i have a lot we have a lot of listeners overseas so thank you to you guys for tuning in i don't know what holiday is coming up over there so just happy european week i guess i don't know anyways make it a good one guys we'll see you again next week for another episode of snapshots in hockey history thanks